In his book, The Wisdom of Tenderness, uh, author and former priest Brennan Manning tells this story. He said, several years ago, Edward Farrell of Detroit took his two-week vacation to Ireland to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. On the morning of the great day, Ed and his uncle got up before dawn, dressed in silence, and went for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. Just as the sun rose, his uncle turned and stared straight at the rising sun. Ed stood beside him for 20 minutes with not a single word exchanged. Then his elderly uncle began to do something very unusual for an 80-year-old man. He began to skip along the shoreline, a radiant smile on his face. After catching up with him, Ed commented, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said. You see, the father is fond of me. Ah, my father is so very fond of me. That would have sounded, I know, so much better if I could have delivered that in an Irish brogue, but I think you get the point. Anyway, we're in a series of sermons, for those of you who are new, called Letting Go of Anxiety. And it occurred to me as I was preparing for this series that a major source of anxiety for many of us has to do with identity, more precisely, creating and maintaining an identity. Some people call this making a name for yourself. For example, here are some identities that people take on. The class clown, the athlete, the hipster, the tech nerd, the successful businessman, the good student, the high achiever. The examples are endless. I once knew a man who's uh, in a previous church whose identity was wrapped up in having the most beautiful lawn in his neighborhood. That was his thing, man. Some women want to be known as the best mother in their social circle. In my occupation, there are pastors whose identity is wrapped up in the size of their church. Money, beauty, intelligence, the team that you're a fan of, your occupation. I have a casual acquaintance who every time I run into him, he finds a way to work into the conversation that he owns a big boat. Now, I know it's not very nice of me. You don't have to tell me. It's not very nice of me, but I love to low-key torture him by pretending I didn't know he had a boat. I'll say, you mean like a rowboat or something? I'll say, oh no, he'll say, it's more like a yacht. Haven't I ever told you about it? And it drives him nuts. And it's probably just jealousy on my part. I will admit that, but I love to torture him in that way. You see, the thing is, these identities that we take on create a great deal of anxiety in our lives. If my identity is that I'm the straight-A student, I have to keep on being the straight-A student, because if I make a B, then who am I? And if you have to be known as the best mom in your social group, what if your kids are troublemakers at school? Who are you then? And if my identity is class clown, what happens if someone else moves in who's funnier than I am? What's your identity? What is it that you cling to that in your mind defines you? That if someone got in the way of it, you'd be furious? Or if you lost it, you would feel meaningless? What identity do you anxiously cling to that in a way, in your mind, justifies your life? And then here's the the other question. What if we've got it all wrong? 
Like, what if we were never to find our identity? What if, what if we were never intended to find our identity in our jobs or in our talents or in our kids or our money or the social clubs that we belong to or anything else like that? What if old Uncle Seamus has it right? That in the end, being known as the object of the Father's love is the only identity anyone really needs. And it's the only identity that really can bring peace and meaning and happiness in life. What if we've got it all wrong? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, once again to the passage that we've been centering the series around. It's Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you and you're new, we'll put the verses up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you and you have been with us for a long time, you're out of luck. We're not going to put the verses on the screen for you. No, I'm kidding you. But please, bring a Bible with you. You need to bring a Bible. Um, Philippians chapter 4. Because I think that this issue of identity and the anxiety it creates is at least some of what the Apostle Paul, the writer of Philippians, has in mind in the word that we're going to look at today in Philippians 4. For those of you who are new, again, this is the passage that we've centered our series around, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And uh, we're just going to go through it again. By the time this series is over, you will know this passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, let's read from verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, I should say, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, every week in this series, I keep pointing out that Paul is stressing the importance of the mind in Christianity. Christianity is not brainless. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Paul says, think about such things. And the word think is the Greek word legizomai. I've been telling you this over and over, which means to meditate on, to chew on, to analyze, to think through the implications of these words and bring them to bear on the circumstances that are creating anxiety in your life. Because peace, you see, is not natural. Uh, You can't be passive about peace. It's not automatic. You have to mentally fight for peace by sifting out thoughts that create anxiety and intentionally focusing on the implications of your faith that bring peaceful thoughts. Specifically, Paul says in verse 8, think about whatever's true. We've talked about that in a previous week. Think about whatever is noble. Talked about that. Whatever's right, whatever's pure. Dustin talked about that. Uh, last week, which brings us to the word for today, he says, the Apostle Paul says, think about whatever is lovely. And I want to try to understand what he means by this word today. And so you can kind of follow along with me this morning. Here's how I want to structure uh, my comments. I want to talk about a startling word. I want to talk about a surprising implication. And I want to talk about a shocking truth. So a startling word, a surprising implication, and a shocking truth. And we'll start, obviously, with a startling word. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this, that instinctively, as a man, I am not really into being told by another man to think about whatever is lovely. Why? Well, because it feels girly. I'm sorry. 
It just does. I know that these days there aren't supposed to be things that are girly things and things that are manly things, but I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. I don't like the word lovely. Lovely feels like a word that women would use to describe each other. Oh, don't you look lovely this evening. But none of the guys that I know use the word lovely when we're speaking with each other. Like when we're playing golf, we don't say to each other, that was a lovely shot. If we like a gun another guy bought, we don't say, that is such a lovely gun. If we did, well, I won't say that. Anyway, we just don't use that word much, do we guys? We don't use that with each other. Not that there's anything wrong with it if you do. That was a Seinfeld reference if you didn't know that. It's not like anyone is going to revoke your man card if you throw out a few lovelies during a conversation with another guy. Someone might ask to see your man card, but no one's going to revoke it. This is just my instinctive reaction to the word. And then once I got past my first discomfort, my first instinct with the word, I found it for a couple of reasons. This is a startling word, really, that Paul uses. One of the reasons it's startling is because this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is ever used, only place. It's the Greek word prosphile, prosphile. And it, and it isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament. By the way, words that aren't found anywhere in the New Testament, but one place, there's a very fancy word for it, and it's called hapox legomenon. And this is a hapox legomenon. And hapox legomenon means it's only used once in the New Testament. <laughs> But what makes it even more startling is that you rarely find this word even used in classical Greek language at all, which is why it's translated in so many different ways depending upon the version of the Bible you use. I'm using a New uh, new International Version, uh, and of course it's translated, as we read it, lovely. But some other translations use the word beloved. Another version uh, translates it as commendable. I was... Curious about this word, so I spent some time going back into ancient Greek literature to find it, and the clearest use that I could find was by the first century Greek historian. This is probably a name that all of you know, Diodorus Siculus. You know that word. You use that on a pretty regular basis, right? Uh, Anyway, he uses the word prosphile in a way that referred to, this is the way he used it, one who is most dear to the gods. One who is most dear to the gods. And so the semantic range of this word seems to convey the idea not of one who is lovely as in physical features or clothing or anything external necessarily, but one whose inner and outer life is so lovely, who lives such a beautiful life that even the gods are dazzled by him or her. And as a result, this person is very special to the gods. This person is commendable to the gods, acceptable to the gods, dear to the gods. That's how he used it. That's what this word is referring to. Well, in our context here in the Bible, who might this be referring to? Of whom did the God the Father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Whose life was so beautiful that he was called the light of the world? And, of course, the answer to that question is Jesus. He was the epitome of beauty or, okay, loveliness. 
His life was selfless, sacrificial, purposeful. He was compassionate and kind. His life was important. It was a beautiful, lovely life. So when Paul says here, instead of thinking anxious thoughts, think about whatever is lovely, he's pointing us to the beauty or the loveliness of Jesus' life and the profoundly intimate relationship between him and God the Father. That's what he's doing. Think about whatever is lovely, whatever... He's talking about Jesus' life, his beauty, his loveliness. And okay, Jeff, you say, well, that's, that's all well and good, but what difference would thinking about that make to my life? Specifically, how does thinking about whatever is lovely about Christ help diminish the anxiety, maybe even the insecurity that I feel around my identity? Well, that is a very great question, and I am so glad you asked that question this morning. It moves me to my second point this morning, and that is a surprising implication. We've talked about a startling word, the word prosphile. Now I want to talk about a surprising uh, implication. Those of you who believe in Christ here this morning, I hope you'll write this down. I hope you'll make note of it somewhere. Because this is a surprising implication of that word. Because of the loveliness of Jesus' life, because of the beauty of Jesus' life, those of you who believe in Christ, here's the implication. You can stop anxiously clinging to the identity that you have created for yourself. You can stop. The pressure is off. You don't have to be the best mom. You can be a good enough mom. You can stop working so hard to make sure that everyone knows about your boat. You don't have to be the perfect girl anymore. You don't have to be the competent girl or the smartest girl in the room anymore. You don't have to be the prayer warrior anymore. You can stop anxiously clinging to the identity that you've created for yourself. Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised? Let me explain. Let me explain. You need to understand something. That this whole thing about creating and maintaining an identity is a doomed attempt at stealing self-acceptance. This whole idea of I've got to create an identity for myself, I have to maintain and identify an identity for myself, excuse me. It's all a doomed attempt at stealing Self-acceptance. Now, to explain what I mean by that, I'm going to have to throw a theological word at you this morning. Um, I don't want you to be intimidated by this word, all right? So brace yourself. Here's the word. Many of you have heard the word before, and every time you hear it in church, you start thinking to yourself, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch today, because you think this word means like nothing relevant or practical to you right? Like you check out when you hear this word. But here's the word. It's the word righteousness. Righteousness. Now, I know. Hang on with me. I see some of you, your eyes are glazing over even as I say the word. You're like, oh, it's a churchy theological word. It's just a fancy theological word. Righteousness. Just a fancy theological word for this. Here's what it means. Measuring up to someone else's standard. That's what righteousness means. It means you measured up 
to someone else's standard. Righteousness. You measured up to someone else's standard. If you think about it, well, first, do you have that? Righteousness is measuring up to someone else's standard. Say it with me. Righteousness is measuring up to someone else's standard. That's all it is. Now, if you think about it, from the time that you're born, people are constantly measuring us against a certain standard. And as a result, they're constantly issuing verdicts on us. For instance, you're either a cute baby or you're one that only a mother could love. Like, that's a standard and that's a verdict, right? Like, when you're a kid at Disney World or Six Flags, have you seen these signs? You have to be so high to ride this ride. That's a standard, this high, and that's a verdict. You're not old enough or tall enough to ride this ride. Um, you get into school, and they say, here's, here's, the, here's the standard. You're either a gifted student or a, a not gifted student. That's a standard and a verdict. You have to be 16 to drive, 18 to vote, 21 to drink. Standard, 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 verdict, verdict, verdict. If you want to go to college, you have to get accepted first. There's the verdict by meeting the standards of the school. That's the standard. Oh, and it goes on and on and on all through your life, right? Everybody's issuing a verdict constantly on our life. You did a good job, you didn't do a good job, blah, 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 blah. Always issuing these verdicts on us. Righteousness is just a fancy word for saying that the verdict on you is thumbs up, dude. You measure up to my standards or our standards. That's what it means. You're accepted. That's what righteousness means. We're letting you in. That's what righteousness means. Now, maybe it helps to understand the opposite of righteousness. The the opposite of righteousness, I think if you ask most people, what's the opposite of righteousness? They'd say, well, the opposite is probably moral impurity. No, that's not what the opposite of righteousness is. The opposite of righteousness is rejection. Like unrighteousness is thumbs down. You didn't measure up. We're not letting you in. So a boy asks a girl out on a date. She says no. He was unrighteous in her eyes. He didn't measure up to her standards for whatever reason. A woman applies for a job. She goes in for the interview. A few days later, the company calls and says, we would like to offer you the job. What was she? What was she? Righteous. That's right. It's a relational word, you see, that means you measure up. You're part of us. We let you in. I like you. I'll go out with you, whatever, whatever it is. It's a relational word, righteous. And it's not as intimidating as you first thought, right? And we've all experienced this verdict thing in our lives, haven't we? Throughout our lives, over and over again, people are issuing verdicts on our righteousness, whether we measure up or not. And as time goes on, you learn what it is that makes people declare you righteous. And it's not, I'm not saying like it's a very conscious process at all. I'm just saying like, you know, you're watching a TV commercial and the TV commercial says, if you're cool, you'll look like me or you'll wear these jeans, or you'll cut your hair like mine, or you'll drive this car, or whatever. And if you only saw that one time, you wouldn't care. But after thousands and thousands and thousands of those commercials, it starts to become a part of you. 
And then the things that your parents have said and what your friends have said, uh, what those people who didn't want to go out with you said, those people who did want to hire you, what they said, all of those things begin to sink in and you begin to develop a standard for what makes you righteous, acceptable. And you'll say to yourself, if I achieve that standard, if I can do that, if I can accomplish that, if I can be called that, if I can belong to that, then I know I'm righteous. Then I know I measure up. Then I'll know I'm acceptable in my own sight, in the sight of significant other people to me, and in some general way, in the sight of God. Everybody does that. Am I right about that? That everybody does that? Of course I'm right. I'm the pastor. (laughs) Am I right about that, that everybody does that? Yes. And guess what that standard that you develop for yourself to be righteous, guess what that becomes? It becomes your identity, doesn't it? It's how you know you're acceptable. It becomes a a way to create a self-esteem resume that desperately fills your sense of inadequacy and emptiness. And here's what's interesting, in fact, the Paul, that Paul, the writer of this very passage in Philippians, is a perfect example of a guy who had developed an identity and he was trying to steal self-acceptance from it. He was trying to say, this is how I measure up. Just one chapter prior to the one that we're looking at here in chapter 4, back in chapter 3, he tells us, That like if you would have grown up in his culture, if you would have watched TV in his culture, if you would have listened to podcasts in his culture, you would discover that what made a person important and significant in his culture was being very religious. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that in our culture. But in his culture, he, he lived in a religious Jewish culture. And so what made you important, what made you acceptable, was being very religious. So just like some little boys today decide that they want to be Major League Baseball players or NFL football players, Paul decided he wanted to be, from the time he was young, he decided he wanted to be a religious leader. That's the way that he knew he would matter. That became his identity. And so in Philippians chapter 3, and I'll let you go back and read this later today, he goes through this long and very impressive list of all the religious things on his resume. Now, like on your resume, I don't know what it is, what what your job is, but whatever whatever your job is, you you probably had to have a resume. And on your resume, you listed all of these things, the school you went to, I don't know, your GPA, the clubs you belong to, the muckety-muck that you were at such and such place, and all the big important accomplishments that you did at that place, right? You list all of that stuff. Paul lists his resume in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, man, it's a long and very impressive list of religious qualifications on his resume. He was a blue chip religious guy. Believe Everything about him said future religious leader. Like when he was in school, he probably, you know, every Thursday they probably had like some little jacket that they wore with ribbons that said future religious leader. And, you know, that, that was Paul's identity. And he was on his way to the pinnacle of religion. But then something happened. On the way 
to arrest and imprison a bunch of innocent Christ followers, Christ appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul believed in Christ, completely changed him. And after he meets Christ, listen to what he says about all of his credentials, all of that identity that he had before, all of the stuff that supported that identity as future religious leader of America, whatever, of Israel. He says, here's what he says. We'll put it up on the screen for you. I consider them, he's talking about all those credentials, rubbish. (laughs) I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then notice how he says it, not having a righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Measuring up to someone else's standard. Not having a righteousness of my own. Like an identity that is the thing that I measure up to, that if I do this, it says I'm worth something. He says, all of that stuff, that was rubbish. It was rubbish. And what he's saying is that he was using religion as an identity to measure up to, to justify himself, to steal self-acceptance the way you might use being the most muscled-up guy or girl, in the gym as an identity. Or maybe you would say having the most followers on social media, that's your identity. Or being the biggest prayer warrior in the church, that's an identity to help you measure up. And Paul says it was doomed from the get-go. And and I'm going to tell you something. The easiest and most palatable way of explaining what he's saying in this verse is that it left him with a life that he and you and I would all describe as not lovely. I mean, what's rubbish worth anyway? (laughs) Nothing. All of that, he says, it didn't lead to a beautiful, meaningful life at all. In fact, he says in other places in the New Testament that it made him anxious and mean. Have you ever felt that? Being anxious. Have you ever felt anxious because of this identity that you have? And have you ever seen sometimes that it can make you mean? Like, what if somebody threatens that? Like, what if your identity is being the prettiest girl in the class and somebody else comes along? She moves into town, she comes into your class, and now she's the prettiest girl. What do you want to do? You want to claw her eyes out, don't you? <laughs> Makes you mean. There was a book written a a bunch of years ago by a psychologist by the name of Maurice Wagner. It was called, I love the title of this book, it was called The Sensation of Being Somebody. That's what we're all trying to do with an identity. We're all trying to be somebody, right? I want you to listen to what he says. He says, try as we might by our appearance, performance, or social status, to find self-verification or self-acceptance for a sense of being somebody. We always come short of self-satisfaction. It's doomed. Whatever pinnacle of self-identity we achieve soon crumbles under the pressure of hostile rejection or criticism, introspection or guilt, fear or anxiety. And then notice how he ends. We cannot do anything to qualify for the byproduct of being loved unconditionally, and voluntarily. What's he saying? 
He's saying, old Uncle Seamus had it right. There's absolutely no identity that you could create for yourself in this world that will give you the sense of meaning and significance and value and acceptableness or righteousness, right? That being unconditionally and voluntarily loved by someone else of great worth will give you. The energy you see that you put into creating and maintaining an identity is a doomed attempt at stealing self-acceptance. It's exhausting and it's anxiety-creating because you have to maintain it and you have to protect it. Or what does it say about you? It's tiring to live that way. So let's close with this, a shocking truth, a shocking truth. We've been talking about a startling word. We've talked about a surprising implication. And now let's talk about a shocking truth. The implication, the surprising implication was that you can just let go of that identity that you've been trying to protect and hold on to. The pressure's off. That was the implication. Here's the shocking truth. For those of you who are here this morning who believe in Christ, by God's grace and through your faith in Jesus, I want you to listen to this. God has given you the very righteousness of his son. Now that is a It's a shocking truth. You may not feel this morning how shocking it is. Maybe you've heard something like that before. Maybe you're letting the word righteousness intimidate you. But the Bible says that it is so shocking that even the angels in heaven are blown away by this. God has given you the very righteousness of his son. What does righteousness mean again? What does it mean again? Measuring up to someone else's standard. Specifically, because of God's grace working through your faith in Christ, listen to me now again. You measure up to God's standard. A minute ago, I read to you what Paul had to say about his attempt at self-righteousness through all of his religious credentials. He said that it was rubbish. I didn't read the whole passage. Let me, let me read the whole thing about what he says. He says, I consider all of those credentials, that whole identity, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, this identity, this thing that says, here's how I measure up that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. Now, that's a shocking truth. What is he saying? He is saying that through faith in Christ... Jesus, standing before the Father, his acceptance before the Father has been imputed. It's a fancy word for credited, given to you. In other words, all that Jesus did in his life, you now get credit for. 
And now the way that God the Father looks at Jesus is the way that he looks at you. The way he loves Jesus is the way that he loves you. The way he thinks of Jesus is the way he thinks of you. The way he enjoys Jesus is the way that the Father enjoys you. Whatever he said about Jesus is now true of you. When he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he now says that you are his beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. In fact, I have to tell you that the Bible even speaks about this change in the language of identity. I'm going to read this to you. Romans 6, for we know that our old self, old identity, old trying to measure up, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's in Romans 6. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, the new identity has come. The old is gone. The old trying to do it yourself, build some big identity that makes you feel great. That's gone. And the new identity is is here. He's saying that if you have believed on Christ, you have a new, better identity than best mother or straight A student. You got a better identity than that. God has issued the ultimate and unchanging verdict on you. The verdict is you are lovely. You are beautiful. You are righteous. You are accepted by the Father. You're meaningful. You're substantive. Your life is important. You are loved by the Father. I could say it a thousand ways. That's your new identity. See, here's the truth about you. When God looks at you, If you have believed on Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the beauty, the loveliness of his son's life. And this is why you can stop anxiously clinging to this identity that you've created for yourself, or the man who can get things done, or the the woman who's always the best cook in the whatever. What what would it be? Fill Fill in that sentence for me. Fill in the blank. The woman who's the best cook in the... In the church. That's somebody said that. In the church. All right, we'll take that. You can stop anxiously clinging for that. This is why you can experience peace that transcends all understanding because the verdict on you is in. You, you don't have to belong to the right clubs anymore. You can if you want to, but they will never come close to being as profound an identity as loved by the Father. You don't have to wear the right clothes anymore. You can if you want to. But it won't compare to being known as loved by the Father. You don't have to be right all the time anymore if that's your identity. You can handle criticism from from others because their opinion of you isn't the ultimate verdict on you. You can admit that you were wrong because being wrong isn't the ultimate verdict on you. And yes, even if your boat sinks, you can be at peace because having a boat isn't the verdict on your life. You see, now in Christ, it is literally true that if you could see God in all of his glory, he is the person that you would most adore in the universe. And the person that you would most adore in the, in the universe now adores you. In the eyes of God, in the opinion of the only one in the universe whose opinion ultimately matters, you are worth to him what his son is worth to him. That's shocking. That's surprising. How can this be, you ask? You don't know what I've done. You don't know my sins. If you knew me, 
Like if you could, if you could see inside of me, you wouldn't be saying this about me. There's no way I measure up. My life hasn't been, and it isn't now lovely or beautiful. Oh, but you see, the gospel is isn't about you. The gospel is about Jesus. He measured up. His life was beautiful. His life was lovely. The righteousness that you have been given, it's not because of you. Yeah, you're right. Your life is screwed up. You are nuts. If we knew you, we'd say, she ain't righteous. It's a gift of grace. It's not by your performance. It's not by your works. It's not by your deeds. It's because of Jesus' performance, Jesus' works, Jesus' deeds, his lovely, beautiful life. And may I just say this, this, do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, no other religion in the world is like this, it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. Not only is that true uh, only in the gospel and not true of any other religion in the world, it's also not true of anything else in life. Wouldn't you love to go to a school where they said, you get an A. Now let's see how you're going to do in the rest of the class. Only in the gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. But in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ is free to you through your faith in Christ, not through your performance. And for those of you who have believed in Christ, I want you to understand something. That's as true today as it was the day you believed. You know, whatever you've done since the day you believed, it's still true of you. You still get all of the credit of Jesus' lovely, beautiful life. And that's how God sees you, the way he sees his son. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You can rest. You can live in peace because Jesus made a name for you, a better name a better identity than the one that you've created and worked so hard to maintain. And this has come freely to you by faith in him. Now, I'm just saying this. Free to you, yes, but it wasn't altogether free. No, not by a long shot. Your new identity was bought at an expensive price, one that only Jesus could pay. The only one whose life was lovely, beautiful, became hideously ugly for us when he became sin on the cross. The only one who ever measured up became worthless for us and with his death gave you his life. Paul says, think think hard and often and deeply about the loveliness of Jesus' life and the implications it has for your identity that you anxiously cling to. And one day, maybe when you're old, near the end of your life. Maybe you too will skip along a beach and someone will ask you why, someone younger, and you will say, you see, the father is fond of me. Ah, my father is so very fond of me. Would you bow with me for closing prayer? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Is... Um, about the only thing that we can say this morning. Thank you. That you have bought an identity for us, a new identity. 
and it came at a very expensive price. Your beautiful, lovely life, hanging on a cross, punished for our sins, so that you could make us acceptable before the Father. Lord, let that give us peace as we work that deeply into our hearts and minds, as we think about it, as we analyze it, as we repeat it to ourselves over and over again. We'll spend the rest of eternity thanking you, Lord. And so please just accept this thanks that feels so not enough. Please accept it this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.